0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu podcast. for being here this is um this is great i'm really looking forward to this
1: yeah me too we agreed we would start with a little bit of um how did we get to this place or why are we interested in this topic and spending our adult lives uh in this space um i don't know if you wanted to go first
0: or i i I would like you to go first began
1: giving you a little bit of that um in in keeping with that co-evolution of um people and machines or technology and humanity. Um, I think that my journey started when I met my first machine, which was when I was 12, my dad brought a TI-99 home. And uh, he was going to teach himself how to do this software thing. Um, And he was an RF engineer. And um, he said, if you want to learn this, go right ahead. And he had a big old thick book on basic. And I taught myself how to code in basic, um, mostly to do my math homework, Um, I don't really like math, but particularly didn't like sixth grade math. And so, I mean, it's the worst math you can do, but the most useful. And so I started coding it to do, to find interest, to calculate percentages, sales, tax, and all the things that you have to do in sixth grade, convert uh, fractions to decimals and those sorts of things. And then, you know, once I um, had that done, I could just plug in my homework and have it finished without having to do any work. So I thought, Um, but I never thought of it as something I would do as a career. It was just something that was fun. It was a a toy. um, Because really, my love was writing. And when I was a senior in high school, I had to take four years of math and was tired of it. So introduction to Pascal counted as a math class at my all girls high school. And it was taught by Sister Mary Newhart, who was Bob Newhart's sister, in full habit. And I took this instead, again, of, you know, like, I just, I just want to take the easy way out. I want to learn more about computers. That's just how I saw them. And um, I had every intention of being a writer. And when I went to my dad and said, that's what I wanted to do, he sort of suggested that I might not be able to feed myself. And I wanted to feed myself. Um, and he was very clear that he was not going to continue taking care of me. But college is a good idea. Maybe you should choose something that you could earn a living. So the next day I'm coding and something's working, and I'm high on that. And I turned to my teacher, Sister Newhart, and I say, hey, can I make a living on this? No one had told me. I was 17, and no one had told me. She's like, yes, this is computer science. Go. Go down to the office and find some colleges. And so I applied to three universities, and Purdue said yes first, and that's what I did. And I went off and and studied computer science, and then worked for Motorola. Um, And after 10 years, decided to leave that in order to raise my family, because I was mentioning this already, that um, I didn't do having it all very well. And yet I needed something for my intellect to keep me satisfied in life, and I began to write. And then eventually that writing led to freelance writing, led to an idea in science fiction and suddenly i 'm back researching technology, you know um, imagining what it would be like to be a machine, imagining what it would be like to be networked all the time, finding the story, writing the story, selling the story, launching my blog, and everything that came from that from from that angle um, was through my writing um, and My father is correct you don 't make a lot of money writing, um, and i 'm actually uh, transitioning back into a uh, a development and or project management, some sort of role in tech. I haven't decided 100% yet, but um, I I know that I want to go back. I know that I want to be a part of that, and I've been in school retraining for it. And I'm very excited about all the things that are yet to come.
0: So it's interesting to me that your dad kind of pushed you in this technology direction. Um, I, my my dad actually was horrified that I wanted to become a computer scientist or an engineer um, you know, he really wanted me to be a lawyer or go to business school. And uh, he he actually, it, it's sort of surprising because I, I, I was actually surrounded by computers uh, as a kid uh, um, because he, I grew up in Puerto Rico and he uh, had a computer service bureau. that So he had a machine room full of these Univacs. And when I was 14 years old, I went in and, you know, uh, read some of the manuals and learned to write some really stupid programs in, in a very strange language that uh, was, you know, uh, the programs were on punch cards. And, and, you know, the goal of the program, as near as I could tell, was to spew out as much paper as possible on the line <laughs> printer. That seemed to be what, what it was all about. But so And I wasn't really that excited by it at all. And in fact, when I uh, went to college, I put on my application that I wanted to study political science. I didn't know what that was uh, I, I, the reason i put it was that i had just read a whole bunch of books by uh, theodore white who wrote these wonderful um historical chronicles of the u.s presidential election so he would put out a book every four years um and uh i i thought that was political science i didn't realize it was actually history um <laughs> but it, so you know i got to college i took my first political science class and uh i didn't like it at all and so i kind of Bounced around between majors, but I was fortunately at a place where computer science and engineering were not very serious, Um, so there was a lot of flexibility there. And I I started to take some classes, and then and then what really turned me around was I I got this um, part-time job, and uh, then turned into a summer job at the Yale New Haven Hospital uh, to write uh, code for microcontrollers. So writing, I was writing assembly code to control robots for um, in, in increasing the automation in the clinical pathology lab. So this was the lab that was handling all the analysis of blood samples and so on at uh, at the hospital. And um, that really got, sort of set me down the path. And I think since then, this was 40 years ago, okay? Um, since then, my entire career has been about... Um, integrating computers with our physical world so it's you know i've been very much focused more on the integration with the physical world and much less on the information technology you know where you're just processing bits it's really been it's always been about the computers actually doing something you know making things move or you know pushing energy around and things like that so doing something physical and that's uh, that's kind of what captivated me And I think that, uh, you know, in terms of how this would lead to me being here, um, that, um, uh, you know, the acceleration in this technology has made me realize that, um, uh, that the technology itself is changing humans in a very profound way we, we tend to think that we are the ones changing technology that we're doing all this inventing and we're you know uh, uh creating technology but uh, we don't realize how much it's changing us mm-hmm. and there's a kind of a feedback loop there where in fact the way that we change technology is influenced by the technology that we've previously created that is then influencing us and that's why this theme of co-evolution is something that you know to me is pretty important it's a the major theme of this book that I wrote, the Plato and the Nerd book.
1: Right. And the book that you're working on
0: now. And the book that I'm working right. on now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we talked about um, setting down sort of, and we started that, these definitions of artificial intelligence or technology. And then uh, I really think um, it would be good to also lay down that concept of the elder bees that you're writing about so that we can take it from there with the audience in terms of these terms as we have our discussion.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's kind of a fun term. And actually, I I'd like it. I'd, I'd, I'd love to get some feedback from the audience, because my publisher doesn't like it. And they're trying to convince me to take it out of my book draft. But uh, you know, this this book that I've written is uh, the title is Living Digital Beings, which has the acronym LDB, which I shortened to the word LDB, and then started using the word elderby. And it's, uh, the, the book is sort of framed around the question of whether we should consider all these technological artifacts that we're interacting with on a daily basis that are really so much part of our lives as a new life form on the planet. And that, you know, it's a life form that is sort of, um, so far, uh, Evolving symbiotically with us, right? For the most part, I mean, it, it, there there's pathologies that it creates as well, but you know, for the most part, it seems to be really um, enabling us. For example, to feed uh, seven billion people on the planet, which would be really, really hard to do with uh, without a lot of the technology that we have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this um, uh, the the book sort of frames the question of trying to understand the human relationship with technology around um whether we should see them as a new life form and what are the implications that that has so i think for example of um uh you know the relationship that humans have with our gut bacteria right you 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 really can't effectively digest your food without um you know your gut bacteria you're very dependent on them um, we're also very dependent on our computers, right? I mean, think about if we shut down all the computers uh, right now tonight, okay? Banking, all, finance, medical. Right. All the money you yep. own will be whatever cash you have in your wallet. Yep. And you won't own anything else.
1: Exactly. Right? You need deeds to your house.
0: And you know it would be it would become impossible to get home. Um, it would become impossible to feed people. I mean, it would be truly disastrous, right? I mean, so. Um, it's not unlike what happens if you kill off all the gut bacteria in a human body. Um, you get a not a very pretty picture, right? Uh, you get a very, very sick patient. And uh, so, you know, we have that, that strong symbiotic relationship right now that um, um, makes it, uh, you know, not entirely unreasonable to at least use this analogy of, um, uh, you know, understanding... The technology as if uh, it's uh it's got its own entity, its own living uh, sense, so one consequence of thinking of it that way is this coevolution idea, mm-hmm. right that the technology we we I, as an engineer, I tend to think of um myself as creating software yes for example I would you, agree. you write software I think you know when I write a program it's something that I have produced from scratch. That's actually not true. (laughs) And it's becoming less true uh, over time, right? The, The tools that I use, the very, very sophisticated software tools that I use, shape my thinking about software in a very, very strong way. And the software that comes out of my keyboard is shaped by the technology that i'm using to create that software it's shaped by the programming languages that i choose to use Um, it's shaping my thinking so this idea that is that it's a purely human created artifact um, when i finally produce a piece of working software is an illusion and i think that we need to understand that you know there's much more of a feedback loop there and that we're not Quite as much in control of the technology development as we think we are.
1: Those are all really interesting points about that, particularly um, because I, I I retook. So as part of my training, I, I just finished the first two years of computer science again, just the computer science classes to contrast that to my first time around, and the the, the development environments and the software that you're using. Like you're building software with all these classes and libraries that someone else wrote 20 years ago. Some, of, you know, some are newer, some are older, but it's still sort of like all that is, is there with what you're doing. And you couldn't have written it without that. Um, this idea of – and those are the things that bring me hope actually when we talk about technology and coevolution, is this idea of um, code reuse – Sharing open sourced software, open sourced projects. Um, I like your the that idea of Wikipedia being part of our brain. Um, you know, why do I have to memorize something if if it becomes more important that I know how to ask? What I need? What is the question? Why? versus memorizing all sorts of formulae and, and dates and, and things like that. That it's, it's already changed us in that way that sometimes when I'm um, – because I'm also a teacher, um, I'm, an, I'm a dance teacher, so I'm not in the academ- academia uh, aspect of it, but sometimes I look at that and I see it's so behind in many ways how a child will actually interact in the world as a thinker now because it, 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 it's focusing on tools that maybe we don't even need anymore. Like memorizing every single date um, about the um, you know every single date of every single presidential election, for example that we 've ever had, i mean that's a good thing to know, and yet anyone can know that now
0: yeah um you've touched on quite a number of issues nicole that i'd like to i mean i could we could uh, go on for a very long time uh, on any one of these but yes. uh, let let me start with one right you you, you were talking about you know uh, programmer using libraries. Um, so one of the things that I've been reading about recently and learning about, because I really never had any uh, um, background in this, is uh, the innovations in evolutionary theory. That it, uh, There's actually been quite a lot of real uh, movement in that field in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and people have a very different perspective of how it works uh, right now and how it you know how early life could have come about so so one of the things they've discovered for example is that um, you can get very rapid evolutionary processes like for example the uh, the evolution of antibiotic resistant bacteria which happens much faster than you could possibly explain with the sort of classical neo-darwinian view which is you know random permutation of the DNA and natural selection and Uh, The biologists have discovered mechanisms like um, that viruses can actually carry chunks of DNA from one bacteria to another um, and inject them into the DNA of the other bacteria. And so it occurred to me that that's kind of what a programmer does, except they're not working with DNA. They're working with what I call a codome instead of a genome. Right. They take a chunk of code from here and a chunk of code from there and they glue them together and they get a new codome, which creates a new species of of animal. And, you know, I mean, not an animal. These are very primitive. In fact, I think the analogy is much more maybe with very, very early life development, Mm -hmm. which was probably, I mean, I don't think people understand it all that well, but it was probably a very chaotic process of self-replicating molecules, (laughs) right, that... Hadn't really developed the notion of species or or, or even sexual reproduction right, or yeah. anything like that. That didn't. That came much later. And so with software, I think we're at that early stage where there's a very chaotic uh, merging of these bit sequences that are creating these whole new uh, you know so- software artifacts that I call bees. I like the
1: idea of the codom. Yeah. hadn't thought of that before. It is absolutely. I mean, yeah, you just I need this solution, I need this, you know, especially teams working together. You're just taking things, putting them together. Oh, it worked. It solved our our issue. You know, it it's what is it going to do next? And then someone else is going to use that later. Right. Maybe if it survives.
0: Maybe. Most, most of most the software of it doesn't. I I write a lot of software. <laughs> yeah, most and of it. <laughs> most of it dies. <laughs> yes. Um and exactly. it, it goes extinct. Yeah, it goes
1: extinct quickly.
0: Um, so, I mean, there, there is, I, I think that's, uh, also a natural part of any, you know, in any evolutionary system that's evolving rapidly, you have a lot of extinction, a lot of, you know, death and, you know, we're certainly seeing that with software. The vet, and, you know, I think when, when we think of things like, um, you know, you look at the successful software products like, uh, or companies like, uh, you know, um, Snapchat, for example, Mm -hmm. and we think, okay, the software engineers there must have really been brilliant. You know, they they knew exactly what kind of software to write and they got it exactly right. But we forget the fact that there were thousands of other pieces of software that were trying to do rather similar things, right? And um, most of those just died off. Uh, The vast majority of them just died off. And the reason that, you know, this one particular strain survived is very complex, and it's not necessarily because that was a better piece of software than some other piece of software. There's all these other environmental factors, just as there would be in any ecosystem where where biological creatures are evolving. There's a lot of environmental factors that are going to affect whether that particular codome uh, survives in the in the ecosystem.
1: Well, that idea of going viral. Yes. Right, and and it always, in many ways, makes me giggle when I'm at the bookstore and I see a whole shelf full of like, this is how, whatever it is, whether it's your blog or it's your code or it's your app or, you know, it's, this is how you make it go viral. And, uh, I, I don't know that anyone has that magic formula and that's part of the mystery of, of life.
0: It's a complete mystery to me. I mean, nothing yeah. I've ever done has gone viral. Yeah.
1: So The, the few, the few blogs I've ever had gone viral. I honestly, I don't know what it is. It's not repeatable. I don't know what chord it struck and then it was over like that. You know, and somebody else had to tell me it was happening because I, you know, you don't, how do you know?
0: Well, you shouldn't worry about it being over like that. I I just yesterday, in fact, read a a, a very interesting scientific article in Nature that was um, documenting the fact that ideas are much more ephemeral these days in the media, that that things are sticking around for much shorter periods of time Mm -hmm. than they used to. Mm -hmm. And they have quantified this effect. Oh, yeah and i think there's a lot of um there's a lot of things we we were talking about this uh, effect that technology has on humans um one one of the um one of the observations that really uh kind of blew my mind was my colleague stuart russell who's an ai person um made this observation that um uh, the the you know we're all worried about the um Filter bubbles and the silos. Y, the silos that you know the information feeds that we all get are customized to us. Mm-hmm. And um, he pointed out that the algorithms that are choosing what information to feed us are uh, using an optimization to to try to predict what we're going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So the 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 algorithm wants you to click on an ad or it wants you to click on the next YouTube video. Right. So it's trying to predict. What thing, what things you will actually click on, right? So it's uh, it's trying to optimize to predict your behavior, but it, then it's feeding you information that will actually make you more predictable, because it feeds you information that reinforces the things that you already know, which makes you then more likely even to to click on the things that it's going to feed you next time. So there's a feedback loop there where the human is changing. And the algorithm is learning Um, the human and the algorithm together are evolving into a very much narrower sort of, um, you know, knowledge base where they're seeing a a fraction of what's actually out there and they're kind of teaching each other. And, you know, we we worry about the algorithms learning about us. Right. Right. Privacy advocates are saying, you know, they're just they're learning about us. People aren't talking enough about how they're actually changing us, not just learning about us.
1: So then Congress was right, in a way, to call in the president of Google to discuss YouTube's effect on the radicalization of certain subgroups within within our country, for example.
0: I Yes, I think that um, uh, I'm glad that there's some attention being they're paid. Asking the to this, right, that they're asking yeah. the questions. They're asking the questions. Even if I worry, they don't
1: understand the answers.
0: Right. I, I worry a little bit about whether anyone actually understands this. And I think, you know, there's kind of a natural tendency when you, whenever you see something happen that you think is unfortunate, you you, you look for people to vilify.
1: Right, to blame. It was that. And, yeah.
0: you know, it's uh, there's a natural tendency to vilify the the, the technology creators, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take this co-evolutionary view, um, they may... It, very likely they 're caught as much by surprise mm-hmm. by these outcomes as anybody right there's um they have less control over it than even they think mm-hmm. right and we do i mean the fact that there are these inquiries being done in Congress and so on gives us gives me some hope that we can nudge the process right and you can do that through public policy you can you can right. nudge processes right but you it's an illusion that you can control them so you can 't just say well all right if all the Technology developers just respected privacy. We wouldn't have a problem. Uh, that's very naive. Right. Yeah, I can see that. So I, I um, actually, this on this question of the filter bubbles, you know, one observation is that it used to be, um, not so long ago, that disseminating information was relatively expensive. Mm. Right. You you needed to print newspapers and have them delivered. You needed to uh, uh, broadcast uh, megawatts of of television, uh, radio signals. Um, And, you know, we used to have relatively few sources of information and the information tended to be broadcast across a whole population, right? Mm -hmm. So um, as a consequence, the population would have some commonality in the information that they're getting fed. Because it was the
1: same on every channel. It was the same in that area. Right.
0: And the the issue now is you know first of all there's vastly more information flowing around this information flux around all of us is much more than any human can absorb um and it's the information flows are being customized to each human so you could have you know two humans sitting right next to one another totally different that have no shared truths because they're getting completely disjoint sources of information and this is not even a fake news problem this Mm -hmm. this is even if even if everything on the internet were true <laughs> you know that's a real stretch But yes. if everything on the internet were true we would still have a problem right because you would end up with these islands of disjoint truths where where people don't actually they're not seeing the same things right um and i think that this can help explain um what i see as a trend of increasing polarization among people uh which I think is a very worrisome trend. I mean, how do you run a democracy if people don't share some common truths?
1: Right. That that's a huge question.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I think that um, this isn't just this isn't just a technology question, right? This is no. a This is a societal question, and I think that um, pinning the the blame for this on the technology isn't right because the increased information flow has a lot of very positive effects, right? We saw that the Arab Spring, for example, was, you know, I think triggered by an increase in in free inf- freer information flow, um, but it then sort of became the Arab winter because uh, of, you know, it didn't, there's problems, and I think the problems are partly due to the limitations of the humans in this system, yes. the fact that we can't, we, we don't have the capacity to absorb all that information that we now have access to
1: well, it's interesting because um sometimes i I think the reason that, for example, Hollywood just keeps doing and this is in honor of the Avengers movie that's coming out tonight or tomorrow night or whatever the kids at school are talking about it, but it's always a you know we're going to rehash stories that a large portion of the population knows, and we're going to stay in this franchise and part of that. I, I wonder if it's because of the fact that we now can stream Netflix. I mean, the number of series and you know, everyone's like, Are you watching this series? Are you watching that series? I would never get anything done if I stayed up to date with the most, you know, the latest Netflix or HBO series that's that's popular. And so that when you are overwhelmed with information, you kind of shut down and go down to what you know. I know Superman. I'm going to watch Superman. Or I I know this type, this genre of story. Just give me this genre because I can't fathom there are billions of books now that you could get online that, you know, how do you know which one to pick? How do you know which one's going to bubble up? Just your newsfeed, I guess, you know, because you were searching for something and that author was related to it. And suddenly you get it in your newsfeed. You know, it's, it's, um, you rely on that algorithm or you rely on what I know, which doesn't, neither of those things are moving you into other people's space and and viewpoints in the world.
0: Yeah. On the other hand, I wouldn't trade this information availability for anything. I I mean, I'm having the best time in my life. I mean, these these books that I'm writing, for example, I, I could not have written books like yeah. this uh, even 10 years ago. Uh, I make very heavy use of Wikipedia, which I think is a mo- really amazing cultural I phenomenon. was glad
1: to hear you say that because, you know, at school kids are told they can't use that as a resource, and I think it's fabulous.
0: I know. I had an argument with my daughter's... Um, uh, chemistry teacher because, you know, she was struggling with the, you know, the Bohr model of the atom. And so I looked it up on Wikipedia and it is a fabulous page. I mean, it is just beautiful. Uh, and so I, you know, suggested to the teacher that they should point their students to it. Oh no, we don't do that.
1: Right. Yeah. It's definitely there.
0: You know, there's this idea that, that you can't trust that, that source of information. Um, and somehow a glossy textbook uh, is, better. Is, is better. Yeah. Um, but w- Wikipedia is actually a pretty remarkable phenomenon because um, it kind of has created what you might call a collective wisdom. Yep. And it's surprising that it's been as effective as it has been. Now, of course, my, my view of Wikipedia is fairly biased because I tend to look at technical pages in Wikipedia. Right. And there's, there's many pages in Wikipedia that are actually battlegrounds among ideologues and they do t- switch from, you know, reasonable perspectives from one person's point of view to completely unreasonable ones in just a few days and things like that. But I, I just avoid those pages and I, I stick to the ones that are, that are more technical in content. And those are fabulous.
1: Well, and all of the links at the bottom.
0: And the links yeah, at the, the bottom. The, the
1: sources. And it's like that is a whole now world that I wouldn't have found. You were talking about research. And um, my latest trilogy that I sold was uh, about – in ancient Egypt, and I found videos that allowed me to walk through virtually reconstructed temples like the the temples in Karnak and Luxor and, you know, to envision yourself in that space. And even, you know, 10 years ago, that would not have been there. And this is just there. Somebody put this out on YouTube and I, you know, spent days walking, you know, know, they walk through what does it look like now? And then everything grows up around it you know, digitally and suddenly you're there and there's the gold etchings on the walls and jewels and the in the temple and the fires in the corner and people walking through and, you know, is it 100% accurate? No, no one, you know, we don't know 100% of anything, but it was not possible 10 years ago for me to be thrown into a world like that that has long been gone um, to get an architectural spatial view of what would it be like to be a person in this place?
0: Yeah. I think that that um, affects us, right? Yeah. As I'm sure, it, it, it as, you, as you said, it affects you as an author. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I certainly am affected by the technology, both as a coder. I mean, I write a lot of software. I spent the morning this, this morning writing software, and I was having well, really enjoying it, mm-hmm. using very fancy tools that were shaping my thinking uh, about the software I was creating. Um, but I also spend a lot of time, you know, writing about trying to struggle through and reason through our relationship with technology. Um, and I find that the technology helps me do that.
1: The technology itself helps you come to agreement within yourself about your relationship that you have with the technology. Exactly. That's very interesting. I haven't, that's almost like a recursive.
0: It's, it's all about feedback. loops. It's
1: all about feedback loops. Yep. So lots of people, I mean, I know I'm one of these people that would like to think that I'm not, that I'm above or that I know things, you know, like that can keep me, me, but is there really, what is that human without technology? And I think, um, you know and again you mentioned earlier about the ai the difference between ai and technology in general too and i think we should probably take that moment because i think there's different fears like part of our, my fear about my extension technology is an extension of me and mm-hmm. vice versa is this idea that it could then control me
0: hmm. and
1: that's where then those ideas of ai come in and you know taking over the world and you know that and it can go all the way off into very a lot of doomsday scenarios and what is that you know difference between like everyday technology we use it all the time we don't seem to mind until they say the word ai and then it's a problem and now we're upset and what is it and how can we stop it
0: yeah i think that's a that that's a big one i i am so i've been actually reading a lot uh you know when you, you let's start with the part where you talk about what makes you you or me me mm-hmm. um I've been reading a lot of psychology recently, which is uh, also kind of new to me. I never, I mean, I took an introductory psychology class in college, but I never really studied it at any depth. But I read Esther Tellen, um was one of the pioneers. She's unfortunately no longer with us, but she was one of the pioneers of this uh, of this principle of embodied cognition. And, you know, she says uh, essentially that that the human mind doesn't exist independently of the body that, it, you know, I think a lot of us tend to think of the human mind as kind of software running in the brain, looking out on the world, reacting to the sensors in our, on our body and, you know, making our actuators, uh, you know, our hands <laughs> right. hands and, and feet and mouths and so on do, do stuff. And uh, her thesis was, um, no, that's not at all what it is the, that the human mind actually is the interaction between the brain and its environment, um, so it 's not that the that the mind is is interacting with the environment; the mind is the interaction itself um, so Andy Clark at uh, Edinburgh has also written several books on this and they're really they 're really very thought provoking books because they change the way that you think of what what the mind is, and they also make you realize that this um, sort of classical view of AI is actually probably naive. If if there's something to this embodied cognition idea, then the mind is not just software running on some piece of hardware interacting with its environment. It's that the interaction itself is actually the, the mind. Uh, so that's that's one aspect. But the, the other thing is that I, I, I th- prefer to think bro- more broadly about technology and our relationship with it rather than zeroing in on what people call AI mm-hmm. because i think once you use the term artificial intelligence you've you've almost gone a little bit too anthropomorphic for my taste because you know the only form of intelligence that we really know about is human intelligence and so what we tend to mean by AI is anytime that technology is doing something that looks like what a human mind would do then we call that AI but there's other potentially very intelligent things that machines do that we don't call AI because they're not things that uh, a, a human can do. Right, I mean, one one example is, um, you know, the, the search algorithms that are customizing the information for you. Um, they're actually doing things that no human can do, right? They're sorting through vastly more information and constructing these statistical models that um, no human could do this, right? So they're actually doing something that isn't human-like really in any respect.
1: And yet it's intelligent.
0: And yet it's intelligent mm-hmm. by some meaning of intelligence, right? right? Um, I think that you know, the recent successes with deep learning um, have partly fueled uh, this hype about AI because they've shown that, it, that we can make machines that mimic human perception. Mm-hmm. but it 's the perception it 's the the vision system, the auditory system right that 's what it 's mimicking um it 's not the the thinking it 's not the the thing that makes you you right. um it 's the perception part of it, which is a very important part of it but it 's actually you know from the perspective of of our relationship with technology it 's actually a very useful development because we need to interact with the machines on our terms. Mm-hmm. and so if we can speak to them and they can see what's happening in our environment in a way that is at least analogous to the way we see it right they they will if the machines can tell that that's a cat running across right then they the machines can do stuff for us that they wouldn't be able to do if they couldn't tell that that was a cat running across and so this ability that the machines have to you know have this human like perception can make them more useful for us because it can uh, give us better mechanisms for interacting with the machines.
1: Like the early Rumbas didn't know what cats were and they would get stuck in corners because a cat would throw them off. Hmm. They just, they, they, they just, in the early trials, that was the number one problem was dealing with the moving object,
0: really? which was it almost was the, always it, the cat. It was the cat. Yeah, okay, the I didn't cat. know that. <laughs> so
1: they, having to fix that engineering problem was very important for that that product to be able to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had, I had given you one of the, the articles I had written about this or stories or whatever they like to call them on medium, but, um, I like to use the analogy, um, of that I, or what am I in with the, the human development that we see in children. Um, and this fact that I, I think we would always agree, we would all agree that a baby is, there's intelligence there, but it's all, it's all reflexive, intelligence. Um, There's the rooting reflex. There's the fact that the head turns and the arm follows that. There's the the desire to roll over and get up. And across cultures, classes, genders, races, these reflexes are in every human being. They're born with it unless something's wrong with the body. And they will learn to walk. And then if they are around someone who can speak, they will learn to talk. They 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 will mimic. They will go back and forth. And this is a much more advanced learning but is it still really the I or the that 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 self? What is that? It's this mimicry back and forth until one day. Um, and the example that I always like to give is, um, you'll see children when they begin to to talk like, "Can I help you, baby? Do it." There's like this general term, or "We do it." Often it will be like mm. "We do it," and who's this "We"? You know, there, there's a "We" still there. There's a you know this sort of "Are you separate from me? I have no idea." Um, and then it will turn to sort of this "Baby, do it." And so now they know they're not you, but they don't, they don't really know what they are. They know they're a baby. And then one day, this child will look at you and say, I do this. I will do this. And everything changes after that. The mimicry changes. Suddenly, there are ideas that you didn't say, but they're coming out of their, there. There's, sometimes there's jokes. Sometimes there's questions why 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 the 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 self the person that they are is now present or part of it it's very young but it's not what it was per, at all as an infant and it wasn't even was is as, as it when it was that early mimicry of dialogue something absolutely changes and conversation comes and many people um in various child development books would state that that's when thinking begins that there's like walking speaking Thinking and that speaking is not thinking. That there is a difference between the human being before that moment and after, and that moment of the I or whatever I do this. How does that ever happen?
0: Yes, yeah, so, uh, this this formation of self is yes. a, is a fascinating problem, I, and i I don't think I don't think it's really very well understood. But I actually I've, I've been reading quite a bit about it, and there's some insights that um, that I was. Pretty surprised by, um, and maybe I, I'd like to share one of them. Right, so um, uh, there's a concept in in uh, in uh, psychology of w- uh, what they call an efference copy, which is when you when your brain tells your body to do something. Okay, it issues a signal to the ner- to the nerves that control the muscles, um, but it also feeds back that signal into other parts of your brain that tell your perception system what to expect Mm -hmm. to hear or see. So when my brain issues the the motor signals to my mouth and my throat and my chest to make these sounds, it feeds back those motor signals into the auditory system in my brain to tell it what it should expect to hear. And if what it if what it hears is a little different, it corrects, right? So there's a feedback loop. So people who are hard of hearing, for example, sometimes have a lot of difficulty articulating words because they lose that feedback loop. So it turns out that feedback loop is a very, very primitive biological feature of even the most simple animal. So if you are if you have a worm that has maybe a nervous system of a few hundred neurons, okay, the worm can tell the difference between uh, an external action causing the ground to move from under it versus the ground moving under it because it is moving, okay? And it reacts differently to those two stimuluses. The, the sensory system is, is getting the same stimulus. The ground is moving, right? But if the worm is the one that's causing that stimulus, it doesn't react in the same way as if something external is causing that stimulus, So the hypothesis uh, among the psychologists is that that basic mechanism is what underlies this formation of the sense of self, because it gives the nervous system a way to tell the difference between self and not self. So the fact that, you know, this arm is mine and not someone in the audience about to throw something at me um, is because of that efference copy. So I don't duck um when i out of the corner of my eye i see an arm fling up right and so there have been a lot of beautiful psychological studies that really look at this this feedback effect and you know the hypothesis is that that's central to the development of the sense of self and there's also people who have been doing studying this problem from the opposite side from the technology side instead of from the biological side so there's a beautiful project by um Josh Bongard who's a professor at uh, the University of Vermont and he he and some colleagues uh developed <clears throat> some robots that had uh arms um you know so they, they if you look at pictures of them they look kind of like starfish right so they'll they'll have some number of arms coming out of them um but he didn't program them to use these arms what he programmed them was to, to learn to use these arms right so that the robot would attempt to do something Trying to, to you know achieve some goal like moving uh, in this direction and issue some stimulus to the arm and then you know with its sensing it would be able to detect that oh that was really wasn't the effect that I wanted and so it created this little feedback loop and the robot would learn to use the arm and they were able to show then that you could actually then change the arm so for example you could make it twice as long and the robot would adapt to the new length of the arm. At first very awkwardly, but eventually it would it would adapt. Or you could remove one of the arms altogether and it would learn to move with the remaining arms. And so this was, the strategy here was instead of just programming the robot to use these particular limbs that it had, program the robot to discover the limbs. Mm. And if you think about it, that's what a baby that's is doing. That's what a doing. baby's doing. Yep. A baby is, you know, flailing and and discovering that Oh, the brain, the baby's brain is discovering the connection between the sensory stimulus and the efference signal that is causing the motions. And as the brain learns about these connections, it learns that that arm belongs to me, not to somebody else. And that is, the hypothesis is that that is actually the formation of me.
1: Of me. It's going through that. Yeah. So obviously, the, all the sensory systems are creating me right so that would include then any um technology in that field of awareness is from the earliest of days is forming me
0: right so one of the interesting questions is that you know the um the computers are starting to do these same kind of feedback loops Mm -hmm. right so at um, Facebook, for example, or anybody who runs a big elaborate website right they they have a lot of choices to make about the design of the website right they 're never really sure which ones are the right ones right so they 'll do some random permutations on the website and see how people react and then ad- adjust the user interface right uh, to, in order to improve the the reactions well that 's a little bit like you know issuing an efference and feeding back an efference copy and comparing the reaction that you get against uh, what you expected it's a very primitive form of it mm-hmm. but it makes me wonder whether there will be some formation of a sense of self as these um as these feedback loops get more yeah, elaborate yeah
1: no so that's that that big question then of Will our machines or our technology ever develop the I to say, I will do this? Um, and some, some, you know, say no, that could never happen because we don't know this mystery of life. But if it is about data collection and sensory perception, um, obviously a machine doesn't have the same body as us. So that idea of how something, an embodied consciousness, how it is set up is very much based on its, on its body. As a matter of fact, one of the things when I hear people say human intelligence is the only intelligence we really know of, well, to me, there, just because another entity has a different body that prevents it from speaking and sharing its experience of life with me does not mean it's not having an experience of life um and i've long thought of that and wondered about that and and this idea that our sensory systems are what make me human but that does not mean that a tree or a cat or a bird or a star i mean there are all there are living bodies we call them alive and we know when they're dead and just because we cannot share our intelligences the way we know intelligence I, i've never quite understood why that's whatever that experience of life is, is not also intelligent.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I agree that it's very puzzling. And I, I guess my expectation is that, um, uh, I, I guess the, the psychologists that I've read have convinced me enough about this embodied cognition idea that mm. leads me to the conclusion that AIs will never be human-like until they have human bodies. And I don't think they're ever going to have human bodies. So, um, they're really not going to be human like it and what but whether a cognitive being of some sort forms i mean it's almost uh hard to imagine how you would even answer that question yeah, right I um, agree. it's going to be there's no question that what what will be forming are going to be very complex dynamical things mm-hmm. um whether they're cognitive or not i think ultimately will boil down to how broadly you're willing to interpret the term cognitive right um i think that they will they will not resemble humans very much
1: well that was something else i was wondering is so we have a definition of humanity but as we evolve with technology as we take more of it inside of ourselves as we use it as it changes us will our definition of what it means to be human
0: change yeah i think um So uh, one of the consequences of embodied cognition is that um, the cognitive self is, that its environment is part of the cognitive Mm -hmm. self, right? And our environment includes our smartphones and our email and our, you know, um, Snapchat and Twitter and all these tools that we use. These have actually become part of our cognitive selves. And, you know, when you just, you know, go to the grocery store and look around at, you know, at the checkout booth and try to find, the, you know, the only people who aren't staring at their phones are the ones that are actively checking out, right? And for now, and, you know, you go on, you go on <laughs> BART and, and uh, you know, everyone's on their smart device. And, and it's hard to not see that as be, having become part of the person,
1: So what about this idea that humans need connection? Um, I've read a decent amount of psychology also. I've also, part of the reason why we create, often what we create is to connect or to assess threats. I kind of think that's sort of the two. We're either threat assessing or we're reaching out, you know, because we've made that assessment. You're safe, now come in. So when you mention that you're on the BART and everyone is, is in their smartphones, they're connected. Absolutely, probably more connected than they would ever be. And yet sometimes if, you know, people walk into that space, they assume that everyone is very alone, very siloed, going back to that silo thing. But really is everybody is very much one in that space. Even if you think you're in a silo, um, once you're in there, you're in there with all the other people that are in there on a certain level, because we're creating the network as we use it together.
0: Absolutely. I yeah. mean, I think I think the the, the network is is very much uh, a medium of social interaction. Absolutely. And it's a very different medium of social interaction. And so, if you're you know a luddite, uh, you might be, um, wishing things were the old way, where mm-hmm. you know everyone in a room would just talk to each other. Uh, but to say that somehow it's worse to have everyone in the room. Actually connected all over the to things all over the planet. Why is that worse? Uh, it's not. I, I I don't think you can put an automatic value judgment on on that being worse.
1: Uh, it's different. It's different. It's different than what we're used to. Yeah. In a civilization. Yeah. And we just don't really know what to do with it because again, it's in, in some ways there's an instinct to know what to do with it because you you go in and you were there and you're networking and maybe you've got like all these different things going on at once while taking a class, right. And watching your latest Netflix and chatting with mom and all these things are happening in that space. And sometimes you've spoken to five or six people in in a minute. Um, and I, I've never been able to do that at any other point in my life. So I'm not definitely not alone. I feel like I know people some ways better than I used to. Um, and, Yeah, and yet it is a little different because we didn't hug hello, we didn't hug goodbye, we didn't um, have a meal, we didn't play a game. Well, sometimes you play a game. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it, I personally find it very, um, very stimulating. I mean, I, you know, I I can't remember what it's like to be bored. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I know at some point in, in my early life, you know, there were times when I was sitting around and there was nothing much that i could come up with to do and i was bored Mm -hmm. doesn't happen anymore um and i i really i relish actually the kind of intellectual flux that is mediated in part by the technology and not just the intellectual flux but also the the social interactions i mean um yeah you know i exchange email with people all around the world uh, on a very regular basis and It's, um, th- these are people that I would completely lose touch with.
1: Right. I agree. I think that's why I'm still friends with my best friend from high school, is that we found, you know, Facebook was invented, to be honest. And then it was the easiest thing in the world to stay in touch. Yeah. yeah. That's true. I, and I mentioned this to you um, when we began kind of going back and forth. Since there is this sense of self and there are these dangers of losing yourself, but also the fact that yourself is changing and perhaps in positive ways, perhaps in negative ways. Um, And we, do you think it's more, and again, the idea of mindfulness is very um, much a trope almost in Silicon Valley, um, you know, with all the thought leaders and, and, and all of that sort of thing. However, do you think that in some ways this is what, those ancient practices or ancient technologies, as, as Charles Eisenstein would call them, um, are more needed than ever before to know, even if it's that you know you can't know yourself, but what are you thinking and liking in this moment? What do I want right now? And does it match, the, the, does it match with what's needed? Um, taking that step back to actually know yourself even more than perhaps we had to know ourselves in um, a, more, a less automated past.
0: That's uh, a yeah, that's a wonderful question, and I I have an answer that is a very nerdy answer. Um, that's great. A nerdy a nerdy answer to a very non nerdy question. Um, but um, I I've been teaching for thirty years, right? And one of the things that I have learned in the process of teaching is that it's actually in some ways a very frustrating process mm-hmm. because I have a lot of thoughts and ideas in my head that I fail to convey to the other person's head, right? It just doesn't get there. And uh, I've realized um, recently that that's probably actually a very fundamental problem, that there's a lot of things that go on in my own cognitive self that cannot be conveyed over a noisy channel. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a, This is where the nerdiness comes in, (laughs) okay? There's a mathematical theorem due to Claude Shannon at Bell Labs called the Channel Capacity Theorem, which says uh, that a noisy channel can only convey a finite number of bits of information. Well, what if what is going on in my head cannot be represented in just a finite number of bits of information? What if it actually isn't digital? It needs more than just a finite number of bits of information then there is actually no way to convey it from one brain to another, okay? I can never get my thoughts in anything even vaguely resembling the same form into your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so that says that, in a way, the, the introspection that you might indulge in as you know, part of uh, meditation or something like that, that you're actually experiencing something that you fundamentally never can share.
1: Absolutely, yes. And
0: i it i think there's enormous value in that because that is of course also part of what it means to be me i i have i have that going on here i can never share it i can never export it uh i need to just uh have it myself and know that it's there right so, and do it yeah
1: yeah that makes sense on some level even though it is a little nerdy um <laughs> You know, and those are private experiences. And yet the idea of, um, watching yourself of observing all of that chatter is not new by any stretch. Mm -hmm. And, um, since there's so much coming in now, a lot of which we're not even sure we, when I mean, we know we can't process it. We know there are noisy channels. We know we get bits and pieces because everything is bigger, including what's inside of us. And also what we put out there and also what we're sharing on the web that, um, to watch your reaction to all of it, I guess more than judging what's being said inside my head or outside of me, watching my reaction to all of it can actually teach me about myself um, even as I change.
0: So I, I don't know if you've read um, uh, Douglas Hofstadter's uh, uh, books. He's he's very well known for Goodell, Escher, and Bach, which mm-hmm. was a big hit a long time ago. But he wrote a more recently uh, um, a a book uh, that is uh, uh, what's the title? It's I am what I am a strange loop. Okay. I am a strange loop. And, and, um, he, he actually says in the preface that he thought it should have, should have been titled, I is a strange loop, (laughs) but that, that would have been too grammatically weird, but he, he's actually talking about in this book about the sense of self. And one of his basic theses in the sense of self is that it actually does extend beyond the individual person. Uh And that in, when you're engaged in a social interaction that you're, yourself actually extends into the person that you're interacting with and uh, i think that it's a very thought-provoking book and he he, you know he's a he's a technologist and a you know a neuroscientist and a philosopher all at once and so it's a very thoughtful treatment of the subject not um you know very very thought-provoking so i i definitely recommend it it's a It'll it'll get you thinking about this sense of self,
1: right? That sounds like yet another book I'll put on my 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 bedside. There, it's starting to pile up pretty high.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there is the you know um, the the question then of when we're making much more use of technology Mm -hmm. and more sophisticated. Uh, technologies like the statistical techniques and AI and so on—that's um, going quite a bit further than using the technology as a communication medium between humans or using it as a w- way of retrieving information. And it—it um, it really could get us to the point where it does change what a human self really is.
1: Right, right that our we- whole definition of humanity would. Yeah. What does yeah. it mean?
0: Right. Yeah. Where, you know, if we're, you know, routinely using technologies that are, um, which, you know, that are behaving in much more complicated ways, that really could could change us. Um, so I, I think that, you know, when people worry about technology, so, you know, Elon Musk talks about an existential threat, right? It's a threat to our existence. Um, I think that, at some level, if what you mean by our existence is that we will continue to exist unchanged as we are today, then yes, it's a threat to our existence because we will almost certainly not continue to exist unchanged as we are today. But whether we will cease to exist as biological creatures, uh, that's, I think, very far-fetched. I mean, or at least it's not going to be AI that's going to cause that. Maybe there'll be something else. but uh,
1: Right. Some sort of more environmental disaster right. than it would be from our technology. But I would agree with you that there is a whole, a new way of humanity and a new way of being, and it's already happening. We just don't think about it that much and just sort of float along with it. But yeah, yeah. but um, I think.
0: I think that the technology has a lot of potential to help us to, yes. you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, with mm-hmm. climate change is much better understood than it might have been had we been in kind of the same um, you know kind of economy that we're in today without a lot of the technology I mean the the sensing that we're able to do the modeling that we're able to do of the climate using computers helps us to understand what's going on and so it's evidently the technology can has it has the potential to help us solve other existential threats
1: I would like to just end with that, that I've always seen it as a partnership. I know there's a co-evolution, but my very first moments with a computer was making it do my math homework. So there's, I would agree that we're already in partnership, whether it's in doctor's offices, whether it's with climate change, whether they're advising, um, and that that's not a bad thing. And that focusing there would be a great step for um, uh, our efforts in putting putting our money in 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 our mind power. So...
0: You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS public programs and performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barraire at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu/podcast.